Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. On September 12, 1995, McKay Everett disappeared from his home in Conroe, Texas. There was no sign of forced entry. It was just as if McKay had walked out of his own free will. And to this day, McKay's mother, Paulette, feels that justice was never truly served. Ransom is available now. Listen at ransompodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV and Resonate Recordings. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence and graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. When I got back to town, um, it was, you know, automatically straight to the sheriff's office because I was one of the top suspects on the list because I was an ex-boyfriend. They didn't give me any other real reason. It felt like they were trying to get me to choke up and say the wrong thing so they could put the blame on me. And that's the way it went the whole time. This is literally the worst possible way to be tied to somebody for the rest of your life. I'm bound to her by the sheriff's officer, the investigators, because at one point in time, or maybe they still do think that I'm the one who did this. I'm tired of being accused of something that I didn't do. Jessica and I are standing in the office of Sergeant Quinn Carlson with the Brown County Sheriff's Office. You may remember him from our first episode. He attended Brittany's vigil, a habit he's formed since taking over her investigation back in 2020. We're huddled around his computer screen as he logs in and pulls up the website for the Sheriff's Office, browncountyohiosheriff.us. And what, you're going to come just to this and there's going to be a link. That's going to be like uh, cold case homicides, or I haven't decided. You kind of expect an investigator to chase leads and try new angles and techniques, those types of things. And Sergeant Carlson is certainly doing that. 
But he also believes one of the most important things you can do for a case like Britney's is simply get her story out there and have a way for people to share information. Because sometimes, just one person coming forward can make all the difference. And he hopes that Britney's story reaches that person. Now, I, you guys, I mean, this podcast thing's millions and millions. Of, it's blown up. I had no idea it was as big as it was until I started looking into it. You know, this is a cold case. The yeah. thing is, right now, my, my greatest thing, my greatest asset is you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to reach the people that know what happened. And that's uh, to, to shut that down and be like, no, I'm not going to tell you anything. It's shooting myself in the foot. That doesn't make any sense. So, and Yeah, and that's just something that's going to be on the website. Just oh. kind of a breakdown on let me see this again mm-hmm. really quickly. Did you draft this? Yeah, I did. It's rough, but I mean, it's just kind of an idea of the outline that we're going to have on there just to kind of give you an idea of... Yeah. Does that make, does it make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Would you mind reading that? Sure. <clears throat> on August 28th, 2013, in the small town of Georgetown, Ohio, an event took place that would change the fabric of the community for years to come. It was a mild summer day when the chilling murder of pregnant mother Brittany Stikes took place on a remote country road with little evidence left behind. How is something like this possible? After 75 plus interviews and around a million dollars spent on the investigation, the mystery of this double homicide still haunts this picturesque town in Ohio. Somebody somewhere knows exactly what happened. Somebody has spoken to someone about the events of this tragic day. The immediate direction of the investigation led to her family, attention-seeking behavior from individuals who attempted to gain notoriety or otherwise benefit from this tragedy have driven the investigation in numerous directions, forcing investigators to chase down copious amounts of false leads, all of which have been investigated and none that have helped solve the case. We need everyone's help in finding the person capable of shooting a one-year-old girl in the head and shooting her pregnant mother without hesitation or remorse. There were no shell casings left at the scene and no apparent motive. I can't help but notice a sort of call to action weaved into Carlson's writing here. Somebody somewhere knows exactly what happened. Somebody has spoken to someone. We need everyone's help. I kind of admire where he's coming from. It's genuine. There's a sense of humility in his approach. But to be clear, this isn't some waving of a white flag for Carlson. The resources that have been poured into this case outweigh any other case in the county's history. This isn't about lack of effort. In fact, it may be the opposite. And that's the other part of his writing that I picked up on. He said that individuals have driven this investigation in numerous directions, forcing investigators to chase down copious amounts of false leads. Now, I can't speak to what he means when he says false leads. I have some ideas, but respectfully, Carlson did not want to go into that. But it got me thinking. What leads have there been in this case? Who do we know the sheriff's office has looked into? Obviously, we know Brittany's husband, Shane Stikes, was investigated. We've covered that in some detail now. But who else? Well, there's been a few that we know of for sure. And I say that because these names are actually straight from the Brown County Sheriff's Office police report. And interestingly, all three of these names came from Shane himself. Reading over the police narrative from the report, specifically the back half of it, detailing the events of August 28th, it says that Chief Shadel and Corporal Meyer, who did not respond to the crime scene, went to Shane's house that night to break the news of Brittany's death. No time was given for this. 
They said that Shane responded like any other grieving person would. And then, the next paragraph is redacted for some reason. But the narrative continues, saying that Shane went to the sheriff's office where a statement was obtained. It reads, He advised that his wife is Brittany Stikes and described her. He further advised that Brittany had been at his mother's house in Bethel. She had been working on an IRS application. She had not been home when he returned from work, but he expected this. He had gone to work out at a private gym in Decatur. When he got home, she was still not there. He ate and went to bed. He outlined his activities from the time he left work to getting woken up. This included getting off work around 1,700 hours to stopping at the Russellville gas station at 1815 hours, to getting to the gym just before 1900 hours, to leaving at 2150 hours. He provided us with Brittany's cell phone number and carrier. He advised that he did not know who could do this other than Dusty Puckett Jr. Dusty was an ex-fiance of Brittany's. He commented how Dusty could not get over the fact that they were split up. He advised that Dusty was cowardly and had been abusive in the past. He advised that Brittany did not tell him when Dusty would contact her. This was because he would confront Dusty, and Brittany wanted to avoid that. Shane advised that Brittany did not have any enemies, and she was not a drug user. She did not drink since she was pregnant. He advised that he had made lots of people angry over the years. He further advised that he had a rocky past, but had been straight for around 10 years now. He advised that he worked at Star Manufacturing in Tri-County. He also gave us names, the names of Jerry Seidner, who lives next to him, and Donald Chamberlain on Howard Hill Road. Supposedly, there had been some type of neighbor dispute. Seidner had told someone that he had a bullet for Shane. This happened nearly a year ago. With Chamberlain, Apparently, there was an argument at a gas station in Ripley. Threats were exchanged, and the parties separated. A few days later, Shane and Tanner encountered Chamberlain on Chicken Hollow Road. Shane had approached Chamberlain, who pulled a gun on him. Shane backed off. Shane filed a report with OSP, and Chamberlain supposedly filed a report with us. The interview was done on video, with a backup audio recorder used. Shane's behavior was what I would describe as normal for the situation. There was grieving and pain in his demeanor. A GSR test was performed on Shane. Shane was released to his family. He advised that he was going to the hospital to see his injured child. Again, this was from Shane's statement to the police from the night Brittany was murdered. Now, before we get into these names... I want to quickly finish out the narrative for you, because there's this one last part at the end, and it feels best to just go ahead and include it here. It references Brittany's friend Samantha, who she told about the road rage incident. The narrative reads, Sometime early this a.m., I received notice of a trooper being told by a Russellville unit that he had seen texts from Brittany alleging some type of altercation and her being run off the road. I made contact with the Russellville unit and asked what was going on. He advised that Samantha Lacey had texts in reference to being run off the road by a gray van. The next paragraph is redacted, 
the second of only two redacted paragraphs in the entire police narrative. And then it closes out by saying they've composed a preservation letter to Brittany's phone carrier, Verizon, and composed a search warrant for the Jeep, which will be kept at the sheriff's office under orders that everyone keep out unless approved by Deputy Bingaman. As a reminder, this is only half of the police narrative. We'll make sure to cover the rest at a later time. But for the sake of discussing persons of interest, you've heard what you need to. Now, repeating from Shane's statement made to police, there were three names that Shane gave to the sheriff's office the night of Brittany's death. And those names are Dusty Puckett Jr., Jerry Seidner, and Donald Chamberlain. As for both Donald Chamberlain and Jerry Seidner, I've shared everything we know at this point. We haven't had luck tracking these men down to get their accounts, but we'll continue to try and do so as our story progresses. Let's start with Jerry and Donald. Shane reported to the Brown County Sheriff's Office heated altercations he'd had with both of these men individually. The first altercation was with Jerry Seidner, who happened to be Shane's neighbor. There's very little information about this incident. All that was reported was that Jerry and Shane had a neighbor dispute about a year before Brittany's death, and Jerry allegedly told someone he had a bullet for Shane. We've yet to receive any reports that verify this. The second altercation was with a man named Donald Chamberlain, and there were actually two separate altercations between Shane and Donald. The first one happened in April of 2012, more than a year before Brittany's murder. It happened at the first stop gas station in Ripley, there's not much information related to this incident. What we do know, according to Shane's account given to the Ohio State Highway Patrol, is that Donald Chamberlain allegedly cursed at Shane's wife and mother-in-law. The report also specified it was an employee at the gas station, and Shane's mother-in-law, Mary Dodson, did in fact work there. Shane confronted Donald, asking him what his problem was. They exchanged heated words, and Donald got in his truck and left the gas station. About a week or so later is when the second incident occurred. It happened on May 6, 2012, near Shane's house on Chicken Hollow Road. If you remember from Brittany's road rage incident, which also happened on Chicken Hollow, it's a very narrow, winding road. Both men reported the altercation to the Ohio State Highway Patrol. Donald reported it the same day, May 6, and Shane did the day after, on May 7. According to an Ohio State Highway Patrol incident report, Donald had a verbal altercation with a man named Shane on Chicken Hollow Road. We believe this Shane is in fact Brittany's husband, Shane Stikes, based on his account to police the night of Brittany's murder. On May 6th, Shane and Donald passed each other on the road. And according to Shane, he told his brother-in-law, who was driving, to stop and turn around because he said he was afraid that Donald was looking for him. So that's what they did. Shane said that he and Donald both turned their vehicles around and met in the road. Donald stayed inside his vehicle and Shane left his truck and approached Donald, who greeted him with, what's up? To which Shane replied, you know what's up. You remember the gas station. And then Donald allegedly brandished a gun, pointed it at Shane and said, this is what's up. Shane replied with, this is how it's going to be and Donald said, yes, this is how it's going to be. Shane then turned and walked away, but not before turning around and telling Donald that the next time he saw him, he better have that gun with him. And then the two men went their separate ways. 
Again, Donald Chamberlain also reported the incident on Chicken Hollow Road. He reported it to the Georgetown Post for the Ohio Highway State Patrol. The story he gives differs from Shane's. Donald said that he was on Chicken Hollow Road on his way to a construction job, but was stopped because of a truck blocking him. A man, who we assume is Shane Stikes based on his own account, got out of the truck and approached his vehicle. Scared and not knowing their intentions, Donald, who has a concealed carry permit, said he displayed his gun and told the two men to go away. Despite Shane's conflicting report, there was no way to actually prove that Donald pointed a gun at him that day, so the Brown County prosecutor decided not to file charges. As for both Donald Chamberlain and Jerry Seidner, I've shared everything we know at this point. We haven't had any luck tracking these men down to get their accounts, but we will continue to try and do so as our story progresses. As a culpable listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. One thing I've learned working in true crime is that your best line of defense is vigilance and preparation, which is why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. I happen to live in a pretty nice neighborhood, but as you know, crime has a way of being anywhere at any time, even when you least expect it. When our car was broken into and items were stolen, I was so relieved to know that my home security system got the footage and it eventually led to us being reimbursed by the perpetrator once they were caught. Crime is just waiting to happen, so be prepared at all times and equip yourself with Simply Safe, the best home security system of 2024, according to U.S. News and World Report. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash culpable. That's simplysafe.com slash culpable. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now, let's talk about the third name that Shane mentioned the night of the murder. Brittany's ex, Dusty Puckett Jr. This one doesn't involve a past altercation. 
The reason Shane suspected Dusty was based on something totally different. According to the report, Shane said that Dusty hadn't gotten over the breakup with Brittany. And he also claimed that Dusty was cowardly and had been abusive in the past. And added that Brittany wouldn't tell him when she'd talk with Dusty because she knew Shane would confront him and she wanted to avoid that. Well, of course, Dusty was looked into as a person of interest. And by that, I mean he was looked into extensively, which is fair. If there's truth in Shane's report, then it obviously raises a lot of questions. Thankfully, out of the three people that Shane named, Dusty is the one person we were able to sit down and speak with to get his side of the story. My name's Dustin Puckett. I've known Dave and Brittany and the whole family since I was about 15 years old. I met Brittany, I think, through a school program, and we kind of hit it off from there. After that, we started dating, and her family pretty much became my family. I lived with them for a long time, it seemed like. Brittany and Dusty were high school sweethearts. Dusty calls her the one who got away. If you remember, it wasn't long after their split that Brittany and Shane started dating. But Dusty still remembers what it was like being with Brittany. When you go back and think, it's it's not just one memory. It, you know, that was a part of my life, whether it was going out fishing or the school dances or anything that we did, we did together. So it was a lifetime wrapped up in a short period of time, almost five years that we were together. You know, everybody looks back at, the, I think, their high school sweetheart, and sometimes they have regrets. My biggest regret was growing apart at that point in time. We were crossing different paths of where we wanted to be in life. The couple went their separate ways, and both of their lives changed drastically over the next two years. We obviously know Brittany's story. As for Dusty, he eventually moved to Cleveland to attend college, and because of the distance, he didn't even hear about Brittany's murder right away. It was shortly after the murder that he received a call from the Brown County Sheriff's Office, who broke the news. But that wasn't the only thing they told him. I was notified that I was a suspect in the case and that I had a, a short time period to be back in town so they could do their questioning and, uh, and things of that nature. I was scared to death. I, I didn't even really know what was going on. You know, I got sat in the room for a little while. I don't know exactly how long it felt like forever. Just being in the situation that I was in, they interrogated me for a good while. And, you know, they, they had already pulled all of my phone records. Um, they had videotape from where I was at work and school. They had all my time clock. I mean, they had absolutely everything, bake statements, whatever there was to be found about me, they knew every bit of it. It felt like showing up there that they already had pinned me, you know what I mean? It was, you know, did you pay for someone to do this or where were you at? And, you know, at that point in time, I was like, you know, you guys already have all my bank statements. I said, you've got video of me being at work and school and know every phone call that I've ever made for the past two years, probably. And I was like, you know yourself, there's no way that I had anything to do with this. Dusty had every reason to be confident. He knew he had a solid alibi. And at the end of it all, his alibi checked out. 
he was in the clear. At least, he thought he was. Remember, this case has gone through many hands, so this wouldn't actually mark the end for Dusty. Years later, he'd be investigated again as a person of interest. They re-interrogated me a few years back, and I, I was with somebody else, and, you know, it re-brings up all the emotions and, and the feelings, and it it's kind of like getting kicked in the hind end. You know, it, it's I've got all these emotions and, and trying to, you know, restart my life and move on and having to fight through that and still give the, the person that I'm with the attention that they deserve and then question me, well, why are you being interrogated for this again? Why are you being drugged through this? What's going on? What would you do? It all takes a toll. You know, when you're with someone and you tell them, you know, I've got to go do this, well, why are you being interrogated for that? You know, that's probably one of the worst things in the world you could be interrogated for. I mean, and, and be accused of. It, it really made it hard and strenuous on that relationship that I was in. The man leading the investigation at this time was Captain Chad Noble, who we spoke with in the last episode. Throughout the investigation, Dusty tried his best to remain calm, knowing he'd made it through this once already. Which kind of makes you wonder, why were they looking at him a second time? From what I understood of it, it's just they had to rerun through people they had interrogated before. And then I get there and they had found some faults. Like my boss that, that I worked for at the time wrote the wrong time on my timesheet for an excuse of where I was at at this point in time. And it was a couple hours off. It's two hours and I'm four hours, at least four hours away. You know, I, I was at school between this time and this time and I go to work straight afterwards. I said, you guys have video proof of that. And I would imagine still do. Other than that, it was pretty much the same questions before, you know, asking about our relationship and if I was upset that, you know, she had a kid or that she had gotten pregnant again and I didn't know that she was pregnant again at the time until after everything happened. I guess their swing on it was, you know, I was upset because she was with someone else and had a family. And that's not true at all because I had moved on myself. I had my own family and I just wanted the best for her. His alibi would be verified a second time and after passing a lie detector test, Captain Noble let Dusty off the hook. It's been a few years now, but he still doesn't feel he's in the clear. Not so long as Brittany's case is open. We still had one question for him, though, regarding those claims Shane made to the Brown County Sheriff's Office that Dusty had been abusive in the past. I believe that there were claims, claims of abuse on your end. Do you want to address that at all? The only claim of abuse that we ever had, she did file for a restraining order for me at one point in time. And that was completely misinterpreted. She said I was stalking her, but I was at Walmart with a buddy while he was getting his eyes done. He was getting tires replaced and getting his eyes checked for new glasses. So we were there for a couple hours, and I sat outside the vision center on a bench. I could see where she thought that I was stalking, but I was just there with a buddy, and that was cleared up. Pretty much any question that's come Dusty's way, he's had an answer for. 
and that seems to have been the case from the beginning. But there's at least one thing that remains unanswered, not just for Dusty, but for us too. And that is, why would Shane have made such a strong accusation? I mean, there had to be something, right? I didn't know the man. I'd never met him before. The only time that I found out that she was dating somebody is when we were exchanging things back and forth at one point in time, and she told me that she was dating someone, and I didn't even know who it was. I didn't know the man's name until this had happened. So (laughs) I was kind of mind blown. I don't know Shane, but I've learned a lot from his record and his past. And some of the things that he was involved in, I don't know necessarily that it was him, but, you know, I I think it may have been something that he was involved in that come back to bite him in the butt. We'll get to his comment there in a moment, because there is more to that. When it comes to Shane and the things he's been said to potentially be involved in, Dusty has only heard rumors, which we didn't get into. Like others we spoke with, it seems like Dusty was sharing opinion rather than verifiable proof. So instead of digging further into that, we tried to end on a lighter note. We asked if there's anything else he'd like to say about Brittany. I think that everyone should know that regardless of what anyone has said about her or people on the other side of the fence that maybe thought that she was involved in something, that she was never a person that would put her family in harm's way. She would never do anything like that. She was an absolutely amazing person all around. I I just don't understand why someone else would put her in this situation. There's been days that I I lie in bed thinking, you know, what the hell happened? Uh, What could I have done? You know, if we would have stayed together, this would have never happened. So, you know, there is that part of me that's blaming myself because we didn't work out. But I got to take it one day at a time, and I still talk to Dave and Mary. I don't know what else, you know, a person can do besides be there for one another. And Dave and Mary's definitely done that for me, and I I try my best to do that for them to to get through. Just like her family, I, I want justice. Not only for me, but for her and, you know, her little girl, Aubrey, that has to grow up without her mom. That's probably the worst part. Of course, Dusty wants justice, just like everyone does. But on the flip side, he shared with us some of his personal concerns with the investigation. He worries about what's being done and who they're looking into. Having been through the ringer multiple times before and ultimately proving his innocence... It's understandable. Before we concluded, Dusty had some advice for the wrongly accused. If it wasn't you, and you know it wasn't you, don't back down. Don't let them push you around. Stand your ground, because that's what they're hoping for. I think in the in the short run, they're looking for the easy way out. So if they can get you to choke up and say something or anything, just stand your ground if you know it wasn't you. You gotta be strong through it. And don't give up on your community. Don't let their vision of you change because of something that had happened. 
After looking into these three men ourselves, we're not left with a lot of suspicion. But we are holding on to some suspicion. Because at the end of the day, Shane seems certain that he knows who the person responsible is. He did back in the original police report. Granted, he named multiple men at that time. And he does now, with the one unnamed person he spoke to us about. And this made me think back to a question I'd asked Sergeant Carlson after reading the case report he'd written for the Brown County Sheriff's Office website. In it, he talked about the many directions this case has gone. Something about like attention-seeking, people like sent this down various routes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that at all? I mean, you get that with all large-scale cases, people wanting to be part of it. And I found this in a couple other cases. I'm not going to say which ones, but people saying, oh, I was there. I saw it happen. I'm like, you just, okay, you put yourself at a scene of a homicide or a double homicide. Okay, tell me about it. And we, this case, we knew what gun was used. We knew what people were wearing. We knew a lot. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it was a, it was this kind of gun. Completely wrong gun. Like, okay, what was the, the person wearing? Oh, they were wearing this. And it wasn't even close to what they were wearing. It's like, okay, why would you just make that up? And that we saw that time and time again. And that constantly comes into a lot of cases. People, I guess, wanting to get street cred. I was, I was there. I know who did it. They don't know who did it. They're saying that to scare someone else into doing what they want them to do or trying to get some sort of... And that's really frustrating to a case because we follow up on everything. You tell me you know something about it. I will be knocking at your door saying, okay, let's talk. And that has happened a lot in this case. That's happened a lot in other cases. And it just, it sets the table back every time. It sets us back every time that happens because it's a, it's a wrong direction. And this one has just been filled with that like time and time again. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. All the wasted time chasing bad leads just to reach dead ends has made this quite the frustrating case for Carlson. While he still exudes a great deal of passion and confidence in solving this case, you can tell it's taken its toll. Not just on him, but on the entire department at least the ones we've spoken with. I believe the claims that this is the toughest case the department has ever dealt with. Everything about this case is hard. I really want to give the family answers. This is a very personal case to the sheriff's office. If I say it isn't, it would be a lie. This is a very charged and very personal case. But you also have to kind of not let emotion control your judgment. You know, step back and look at it differently because it hasn't been solved yet. So we're missing something. 
The more we dig into this case, the more it's made me think back to that claim Carlson made, that we're missing something. Because obviously if the case is unsolved, we're missing something. A confession, DNA evidence, you name it. But that doesn't necessarily mean the thing we're missing is the perpetrator, or even the motive for that matter. After all, Shane seems to know who did it. At least that's what he told us. He left their name out of it, of course. But he insisted Jessica, being a local, would know who this person is. But the identity wasn't the only thing he seemed to know. He also told us he's of the belief that Brittany's death was intended to be a message to him. And to me, that's a little different than thinking you know who committed a crime. That speaks more to the motive. But why? Why would someone send Shane a message by way of murdering his pregnant wife and shooting her one-year-old daughter? Well, what's shocking is, when we dug into this a little more with Shane, he basically told us why. I was doing something good. I was doing something positive, and someone didn't like that. Again, I can't really get too much intel, but I was doing something positive because of what I seen going on around me in my community. There was a lot of crime, and I wanted to do something about that. I did what I thought I needed to do, and I think that got under someone's skin. I don't know anything about, I don't, that's the thing, is this person of my original story, I, I don't know anything about this dude's personal life except for one thing, and it's not like I'm the only person in the world that knew this. Everyone knew this. So that's all I got to say about that. Culpable is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper, and produced by Jessica Knoll. Executive producers are myself, Mark Minery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Our senior producer is John Street. Additional production by Todd McComas. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Dayton Cole, Pat Kicklighter, Adam Townsell, and Caleb Melcher of the Resonate Recordings team. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins, with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. Additional score of this episode by Lovers and Madmen. Our cover art is by Drew Bardana. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcasts. Show notes, as well as bonus content, can be found on our website, culpablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you have any information about the murder of Brittany Stikes, we urge you to contact the Brown County Sheriff's Office by visiting their website, browncountyohiosheriff.us, where you can anonymously submit your information. Or you can contact Sergeant Quinn Carlson directly at 937-378-4435, extension 126, or by email at quincarlson at bcoso.com. You can also submit your information through our website, culpablepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>